a hum there. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Reclassicope podcast. Definitely not the most deserving podcast, but one of the best four podcasts you'll listen to today, provided you don't listen to more than four podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Young, and today we are trying to fix the unfixable. We are we have a committee of 13 people headlined by me and I and only one person will be speaking that which will be me. But we are determined to determine the best podcasts, the best four podcasts you'll hear today and fix really namely we're here to fix a system that is unfixable and that is college football and the college football playoff. If you are not aware there is much consternation. There is much internet ink, much Twitter X tweets being spilled on the floor, griping that undefeated 13-0 and Florida State, champion of the ACC, a Power 5 conference, did not receive an invitation to the ball which is a college football playoff. Instead, invitations were given to two 12-1 teams, 12-1 Texas, champions of the Big 12, and 12-1 Alabama, champions of the SEC, who had just defeated Georgia. The reasoning given by the committee was that FSU's starting quarterback was injured, and... Because of that, they were no longer one of the four best teams. I'm going to explain in a minute why this was the wrong decision by the committee, but I'm actually glad that this happened, and I will explain why. First off, I'm going to take a step back and explain that I really had a great time watching college football this past Saturday. Now, part of that is I am a University of Texas fan and University of Texas got the number three seed in the playoff and made it and got the goodwill of the committee. A benefit of the doubt FSU did not get. So I enjoyed watching Texas beat down Oklahoma State, perhaps uh, looking especially good to impress the committee and try to prove that they're one of the four best teams. I very much enjoyed their blowout of Oklahoma State. I very much enjoyed the 4 p.m. game, which was Alabama versus Georgia in the SEC title game. This was very much, as the announcers said, a heavyweight prize fight between two title contenders, which really felt like a playoff game. I very much enjoyed that Alabama won this game because I knew it would possibly make things harder for the college football committee to determine which four teams should get in. But you know what game I enjoyed almost as much as the previous two games? That was the ACC Championship Florida State versus Louisville. Now, you have to be somewhat of a college football sicko to like this game. For those that don't know, a sicko is a general internet term for people who enjoy in dysfunction and craziness. And this game was hilariously dysfunctional. First off, Florida State has a very elite defense. They have NFL players all over the field, and they were just absolutely shutting down Louisville's running game, Louisville's offense. Louisville couldn't move the ball down the field. Meanwhile, Florida State was down to their third-string quarterback and were thus really having a lot of trouble moving the ball down the field. And they were it was just three and out after three and out after three and out. And if you are a sicko, you you do enjoy rooting for punts. And this game was one big, glorious punt fest for at least the first half before Florida State pulled away in the second half. But what I really enjoyed was that a chaos scenario was unfolding in front of our eyes. That the college football playoff committee had really painted itself into a quarter. And that this group that was supposed to be the objective truth tellers that would figure out what the best four teams in college football were, were going to have to do something that's kind of a little gross in in order to get their quote unquote best four teams in. And in doing so, break some cardinal rules that I, I believe show how flawed the system is and show how overdue we are for an overhaul. 
in, in the system. Specifically, I, I think the committee has been somewhat opaque and inconsistent with their, their choosing of criteria. And I think their declared framework of just picking the best four teams is really a way of a mode of carte blanche for them to do pretty much whatever they want. If it were me, I think the framework should be the four most deserving teams because with deserving teams, you have a resume to point out that can you can say this team was actually better than the other one based on the resume. They did more during the regular season. They scheduled and beat good opponents. They didn't just blow out bad opponents to make it hard to tell if they were one of the best four teams, cough, cough, Michigan. And I think the games during the regular season have to matter. One of college football's greatest traits is that the regular season really shapes out like a season of Survivor. Every game feels like an elimination game of some sorts. And while there are just way too many college football teams out there that we really do actually need a human committee to determine who should get to play in the playoffs, much like we have for college basketball to determine things like seeding. Again, we have 133 uh, different college football programs in Division One. But if we are going to have a committee, I think they need some very clearly stated criteria. Not just clearly stated criteria, uh, objective criteria. And I, I think some of our unwritten rules need to be written out of in order for this to really work. And first off, I, I think there's just two cardinal rules that the committee has been afraid to touch until now that have always been kind of unwritten rules ever since the BCS, ever since even the 2000s, throughout the history of the sport, pretty much. And those are, as as far as I've experienced in my lifetime, those two unwritten rules are, one, that we look at these teams based on, do, they, do you have zero losses, do you have one losses, or do you have two losses? And pretty much first we we give the benefit of the doubt. First we reward the zero loss teams, the undefeated teams. Then once we run out of those teams, we look at the best one loss teams. And then we look at the best two loss teams if it's a real chaos scenario like 2007 where they're, everyone was losing. But the thing I like about this rule is that it limits what the committee can control subjectively. We know that zero losses is better than one loss, which is better than two losses. And sure, we do need a committee to determine what a 12-1 and Ohio State looks like versus a 12-1 and Texas versus a hypothetically 12-1 and Oregon. We do need a committee for that, but we shouldn't trust the committee to find some sort of way that a 12-1 and team is, is greater than a 13-0 and Power 5 champion. So that's the first rule. The second cardinal rule that I, I think should be around is that within those buckets, so within the undefeated bucket, within within the one-loss bucket, within the two-loss bucket, if you've beaten someone head-to-head, -head, you deserve to be in over that particular team. This seems pretty straightforward. It's a tiebreaker in pretty much every sport. It's a tiebreaker in the NFL. In the NBA, it's the number one tiebreaker for a lot of sports. And I think the average American fan would agree with this. This makes sense. You don't, have, not even the average American fan, just the fan of any sport, like head to head, if you played on the field and, and one was better than the other, that, that should matter. Quick note as a salty Texas fan, this did not matter in 2008. The committee, the BCS committee, decided to go with Oklahoma over Texas in the BCS, even though Texas had beaten them head-to-head, -head, which was garbage then and is garbage now. Rant over. But I think a, a quick way to summarize why these are cardinal rules is that we have this committee to determine tiebreakers, but if there isn't a tie in the record, you, would, you should just go with the team with the better record. And if they played each other head-to-head, -head, you do not need a committee to determine which team is better because... They played each other and, and settled it on the field, which is what I think most people would prefer. The reason we are expanding to 12 teams is that more of these games can be settled on the field. But in their explanation, I, I think it was very telling that in, in their explanation, the 
college football committee, they basically had one thing that they wanted to say. When the head of the college football playoff committee was was asked why uh, Alabama over FSU, they introduced a, a now what's become a new cardinal rule. They basically said that Florida State's quarterback is hurt, and because of that, they are not the team that they once were. Without their quarterback, Jordan Travis, they are not one of the best four teams. And you know what? I think if you looked at the ACC championship punt fest that I very much enjoyed, it's hard not to agree with this statement. Florida State is not currently one of the four best teams. Florida State would probably get blown out in a college football playoff game. But the key word there is probably. If we determine who is going to advance based on what probably would happen, then why are we even playing these games? And that's another reason why I believe the committee really paid themselves in, in a quarter right here. Their stated criteria is best four teams, and Florida State is not currently one of the best four teams, and so they kind of had to put a different team in over Florida State. Which is, But I think that's just a, a dumb criteria, LOL. Notice I do not believe the committee said things like, oh, we think the SEC is better than the ACC. Because if you look at a lot of the big non-conference games between the SEC and other conferences, Texas in the Big 12 beat Alabama in the SEC, and Florida State in the ACC beat LSU in the SEC. So if you're just looking at the singular season right here, it's kind of hard to argue that the SEC was the best conference when conferences like the uh, Pac-12 really dominated in non-conference play. But that's the ultimate elephant really hanging over the room, which I, I think is what a lot of people are upset about. People are upset that the SEC is getting the benefit of the doubt, that Alabama, a, a program that's been a dynasty in college football for a number of years, that uh, Georgia, the two-time defending champion, that Bama, the SEC winner, is getting the benefit of the doubt, and the committee is kind of jumping, breaking rules so that the SEC champion can be in the playoff. And I get part of that. The SEC has been the best conference over like the last 15 years. But if you're looking year to year, which is why we have a committee to determine because every year is different. If you're looking at this year, it's kind of hard to argue that the SEC was the best conference. But anyways, I am beating a dead horse or, or beating a dead sem. Never mind. How do we actually fix this problem? How do we actually fix college football? Well, looking on the internets and, and looking on Twitter, I, I think uh, one tweet I saw from Bomani Jones is that this isn't fixable, that this is a very much an unsolvable old problem, that there's going to be snubs every year, that the format is going to be different every year, that the number of viable contenders is going to change every year. We also run into an issue that I think every sports league really deals with and, and struggles with. Uh, namely the Major League Baseball. And that's the juggling act between A, having a regular season that matters, B, having an, an exciting playoffs as the American way kind of dictates that every sport should have a playoff, and C, making sure that the teams that deserve to be in the playoffs are in the playoffs and that we don't have a bunch of teams that don't deserve to be in the playoff in the playoff. And so I've seen a, a couple different playoff formats suggested, uh, but I'll tell you what, what's not the solution, and that's the current solution that we're going into next year, which is the 12-team playoff in college football. 12 teams is just too many teams. I was looking at the what the projected 12-team playoff would look like if it were to happen this season. And one of the, the first games was going to be Ole Miss versus Georgia in the 6 versus 11 bout. And that would be an interesting matchup, except for the fact that Georgia already played them and already beat them 52-17. to 17. Ole Miss also played another team that was in the playoff mix, and that was Alabama. And you know what? Alabama beat them by two touchdowns, 24-10. to 10. And if you lose those games... 
I, I'm sorry, but I think you've been eliminated. Those are what makes college football so great is that those are elimination games during the regular season. To further beat this dead horse, or, or shall I say, Nittany Lion, uh, Ole Miss, pretty funnily, is, is playing uh, Penn State in their bowl game. Here's Penn State's resume. They played three different ranked teams. Uh, they blew out Iowa, which was 24 in the nation at that time. Iowa is almost kind of a meme team in a way. Iowa's, they have a, an excellent defense, but their, their offense is equally as putrid. Um, I, I believe their punter led the nation in punts. But, you know, they're, they're, Iowa's, they're a real football team. That, that's solid, I, I guess. Uh, Penn State beat them. Uh, the other two ranked teams that they played were Ohio State, who they lost to, and Michigan, who they lost to. And if that's the case, I think you've been eliminated. I think you've been eliminated from the playoff, but in this 12-team format, you're in the playoff. I don't know why Ohio State and Michigan should have to beat you again when they beat you handily in the regular season. And this also runs into the issue of perhaps a lot of teams schedule cupcakes throughout the year because they know that as long as they have a good record, they can sneak into the playoff through a 9, 10, 11, or 12 seed. And what I'm getting at is really at the end of the day, there were maybe eight different teams that seemed very playoff worthy at the end of the day. There was Michigan, Washington, Texas, Alabama, Florida State, Georgia, Ohio State, and Oregon. And while I do have sympathy for Florida State, it's hard to have sympathy for three of those teams, Georgia, Ohio State, and Oregon, because they basically played playoff games and lost those. Uh, in their either their conference championship weekend or the week before, in the case of Ohio State. Ohio State lost to Michigan, Oregon lost to Washington, and Georgia lost to Alabama. So we've already had pretty thrilling de facto playoff games with those teams involved already. And sure, maybe I'll, I'll hear a case that Georgia should still be in this because they lost like really closely to Alabama. I'll, I'll hear that. I, I'd be happy to give Georgia the benefit of the doubt. But really, there's only one real snub, which is Florida State, because they won all their games. They didn't lose one of these de facto playoff games. And despite that, they, they're not getting in over two teams that actually lost games. Alabama lost perhaps a playoff game to Texas. Granted, it was in September. Okay, so, so what's the point? What's the solution? Really, we need to get to a point where the snubs really had a chance to say it on the field and... and they can't really complain about it too much. So I think expanding the playoff very well may be uh, reasonable for, for college football. Kevin Clark of, I, I now believe ESPN, but formerly The Ringer, uh, said basically a 16 playoff would be perfect for college football. And given that I listed roughly six teams that I believe are playoff worthy, I can't. it's really hard to disagree with him that six would make a lot of sense year over year. I think an eight-team playoff would make a lot of sense. We had eight teams, Michigan through Oregon, that seemed like they were contenders this year and, and deserve perhaps a shot. When we get into the 9, 10, 11, 12 range, you're losing a lot of sympathy, and at that point you are discrediting the regular season, in my opinion. I agree with Kevin's point. I, I think a six-team playoff makes a lot of sense. And look, no format is ever going to work. There's always going to be snubs. Heck, we have a 68-team college basketball tournament, and yet there's always snubs every single year. Now, granted, if you are snubbed because you're the 65th best team in college basketball, I have a little less sympathy for you. You weren't going to win the, the tournament regardless, and, and in fact, college basketball has to deal with the problem of Perhaps it is a little too random. Perhaps the regular season doesn't matter as much as it should. But in college football, I think the six to eight range, the six to eight team range is where we will have some snubs, but it's not like we're snubbing a, a team that actually is kind of worthy of making the playoff. My solution that I would want to see that I, I don't think would ever happen is actually a five team playoff. I think it would be really right or really interesting that Alabama and Florida State play for that final spot. I actually think 
that the number of contenders changes every year. And because of that, we honestly should change the number of teams that make the playoffs every year. This year, I think five to six teams were playoff worthy. Um, Other years, it might be seven. Other years, it might be four. The reason we actually have this committee is because every year is different and you need some sort of qualitative analysis to determine who, who deserves to play for a championship. But again, I'm probably living in a utopia that doesn't exist and we're never going to get it right as a society, as a committee. And thus, I'm, I'm going to end this segment with this. I actually don't think college football really needs fixing. I'm not saying it isn't broken. I'm not saying that it's not imperfect. I'm not saying that we're going to avoid high-profile miscarriages of justice like what happened with Florida State. What I'm saying is that college football has and always has been a great product. It's always been a regional sport. It's always had 100-year rivalries between your town and the neighboring town. It's always had games with stakes, not because particular games were for the national championship or a playoff spot, but because you're a Duke fan and you really hated UNC and you really wanted to beat their ass. It's almost like high school football where the goal is to win state, not necessarily win a national championship. There's always been these prizes such as beating your rival or winning your conference or back in my day, winning a bowl game when those used to matter. And it really feels like the powers that be are doing their best to really ruin all that. Whether it's through conference realignment, whether it's through a ever-expanding playoff, we know what why they're doing it. It's very financially related. And who knows, perhaps their new 12-team playoff, perhaps there's a small chance that it might actually be better than what we already had. But part of me is really going to miss all the arguing and all the consternation and all the high-profile snubs and all the times that the committee gets it wrong. Because that's what's always made college football college football. And instead, we're trying to make it like every other league. All right, part two, Victor Wembenyama versus Chet Holmgren. I'm going to start talking about this debate, and then I'll end it off with a little bit of a state of the Spurs to conclude 2023. First off, I'm going to say that Victor Wembenyama and Chet Holmgren are currently my two favorite players in the NBA. I hate that they are pitted against each other. If you've been following this feed or if you just scroll down the list of podcasts that I've published, one of those will be a NBA draft preview for 2022. And on that draft preview, on the thumbnail for the that particular episode, the cover art for the episode is literally an astronaut flying through space, holding a flag and planting it on the moon. And you know what that flag says? That flag says Chet Holmgren is going to be a star. It kills me. It kills me that I have to, in order to promote my boy, Victor Wembenyama, who plays for my beloved San Antonio Spurs, I have to go against my other boy, Chet Holmgren, who plays for Oklahoma City. I hate this debate, and I think it's honestly a fraught debate, and we're, we're just doing it just because they're both tall. Because this is Chet Holmgren's second year in the league. I don't think he should be compared against Wemby. Well, scratch that. I I think they should both be compared because I think they are possibly generational talents. And they're both really tall and and similar builds. They will be compared throughout their entire careers. That's, That's just a fact. But for terms of rookie of the year, I honestly believe that Chet Holmgren should be compared against the 2022 class rather than the 2023 class because when we look at this 10 years from now, we're going to look at past drafts and look at, all right, who were the busts, who were the hits, who were the stars of the 2022 draft, who were the stars, who were the busts of the 2023 draft, 
And when you look at history, it's going to be Chet Holmgren versus Paolo Bancaro for that 2022 draft. And it's going to be Victor Wembanyama versus, I guess, Jaime Jaquez in, in the 2023 class. We're pitting these two guys against each other when Chet Holmgren is about a year and a half older than Wembanyama. When Chet Holmgren is half a year older than last year's Rookie of the Year, Paolo Bancaro. So I've, I've never really thought, maybe, this definitely comes off of sour grapes, but I've never really thought that like second-year players should be considered for Rookie of the Year. Um, but they are considered for Rookie of the Year legally, and it does make for a really fun debate of Chet Holmgren versus with Victor Wembanyama. So based on those rules, I, I guess I'll concede and, and we'll actually debate Chet versus Wemby here. And look, uh, statistically, Chet Holmgren is the rookie of the year. He's put up comparable points, rebounds, uh, block numbers, and he's done it with a whole lot of more efficiency. Chet Holmgren is also on a winning team. The Spurs, as of this recording, are on, I believe, a 14-game losing streak. And I've watched most of those 14 games, unfortunately. Meanwhile, as of this recording, the Oklahoma City Thunder, who were a play-in team last year without Chet Holmgren, are now 13-6 and and second in the West. I know that if Victor Wembanyama wasn't on the Spurs, I would totally be rooting for Chet Holmgren to win Rookie of the Year. And I think based on how we've handed out the war the award historically, he is deserving of winning Rookie of the Year based on performance and his impact on winning. That said, having watched both of them, granted a lot more Victor than Chet, Victor Wembanyama is better at basketball than Chet Holmgren currently right now. I hate to be Mr. Anti-Analytics because I am usually Mr. Pro-Analytics. And I'm going to use a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that Wembenyama is better. And uh, there are things that I, I do think Chet is a lot more polished offensively. I think Chet, as it, states, as it stands, is currently a much better shooter from outside than Victor Wembenyama. He very well may be a better offensive player than Victor Wembanyama. But man, Wemby does two to three things a game that make your jaw drop that you have never seen before in a basketball game that makes it look like he is playing on a Fisher-Price hoop. And some of that is context. Victor Wembanyama is he's the best player on his team, and, and thus he has to carry much more of an offensive burden than Chet Holmgren, who is teamed up with several playmakers like Jalen Williams, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's a top 10 player, uh, Josh Giddy. Yep. And thus Victor has to, has the opportunity to carry the offensive burden, has the opportunity to have a riskier shot profile and uh, take some kind of really wacky shots. And, so with those highlights, you don't see the lowlights on Twitter. He takes some really awkward jumpers. He does some stuff that he honestly probably shouldn't try. I'm sure there are plenty of Spurs fans who are really aggravated whenever he does kind of like a step back three-pointer when all you want him to do is catch the ball near the basket and just dunk on someone. I get all that. There are definitively growing pains with Victor but when it's good, man, there's just there's just no stopping. He is he just becomes the best player on the floor when he is rolling. If you watch the highlights of his 38 point performance against the Phoenix Suns earlier in the year, he was the best player on the floor in a game with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker on the other side. The Suns were down 19, and, and Devin Booker led this furious rally, and then Victor just was like, okay. And shut the door on them and scored, I, I believe, like 10 consecutive points with an array of threes, an array of jumpers. And it's just, whenever he hits a three, you're like, wow, society is screwed. <laughs> because he can get this shot off whenever he wants a, a three-pointer, and it's it's just crazy. It, I'm sure 
couple of years ago, a lot of conversations were like, man, Giannis Antetokounmpo, he's such a force driving to the basket. Imagine if he has a jump shot ever. And Giannis never really developed that jump shot. He never developed a, an outside shot. He's still a bad free throw shooter. But Victor might. Victor might be able to... He, he shoots like 80% from the line. He might be able to become an amazing three-point shooter that can just get a good shot off every single time. He's not there yet. Chet's a lot closer to that. Chet's like shooting 40% from three. But whenever Victor shoots a three or whenever... I mean, Chet, Chet has this to a certain extent, but it's like, oh my goodness, what are we witnessing right here? And those moments from Victor, which are, are very flashy, they're a little few and far between, uh, unfortunately, because the Spurs have run somewhat of a broken offense. They currently don't start a point guard. They start Jeremy Sohan, uh, who's a 6'9 guy from Poland, who's is more of a small forward, but they, they start him at point guard in a little bit of an, an experiment. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Sohan is not a, a good shooter from outside. And they also start Zach Collins, a, another big man right next to Victor, so that Victor Wembanyama does not have to play center, does not have to get beat up at the center position. They also start Keldon Johnson, who is a guy who needs to drive to the rim, who is not a, a great three-point shooter. I, I would say he's passable in comparison to Collins and and so on, but he's not a great three-point shooter. At any given point, they will start one good three-point shooter along with Victor Wembanyama, maybe two if if Chetty Osman is out there. And thus, it's just really cramped for Victor. He has to, uh, he doesn't have a lot of space. It's really hard for him to catch it close to the post. And when he does get positioning, it seems like no one can really throw much of a lob pass. Uh, to Victor and they it's struggling they struggle to get the ball to him even in transition and it's just I, I know this is all hypothetical but it's just like what if we surrounded Victor Wembanyama with with shooters with a functional point guard what would happen then and a lot of that is happening with Chet right now Oklahoma City runs of very much of a, a pace and space kind of model where they surround Shea Gilgis Alexander with a bunch of shooters and one of those shooters is Chet for that for example but a lot of what Chet does is partly go into the corner catching the ball above the break and catching open threes and and hitting those threes to to much of his credit he's also really sick in in the pick and roll as a, a distributor he can do pick and pops he also has some really filthy post moves and, and fadeaways and he has a great handle if you're going to make the case for Chet Holmgren as Rookie of the Year or even as an All-Star, which I very much endorse, um, he's a complete, polished offensive player. And even further yet, he's had some of the, the scoring outbursts that and signature games that uh, you want for someone who's trying to win this very narrative-based award. If you watch his highlights versus Golden State where he scored 36 points and had this, like, really ridiculous Kevin Durant-esque uh, catch-and-shoot three-pointer to send the game to overtime. It's like, sheesh, like, what, what can't this guy do? But one thing you'll also notice in those highlights is that there are times when the attention is not on Chet Holmgren, where the defense collapses on Shea Gilgis Alexander and either Chet is open for an easy dunk at the rim or they just leave him open in the corner and he just doesn't command the same offensive attention that Victor commands with the Spurs now does that mean Victor is better no absolutely not but these are very like different situations these are very apples and oranges situations when you're trying to compare the two in a way that you just can't look at their stats. You can't just look at their efficiency to determine who's the winner. I would say their defensive stats are also pretty similar. Granted, I I think most analysts would say Victor is a little bit ahead on that side. Statistically, Victor's had some pretty crazy box scores. Uh, He had one game with eight blocks. He had another game with six steals and four blocks. He breaks a lot of defensive rules. Like He will help off a 
three-pointer in the strong corner. That means if what what that means for the people back home is if a point guard is driving to his right, um, it's a generally a cardinal rule that you should not help off of the three-point shooter in the right corner because it's such a short pass and it leads to a wide, wide open three that's really easy. But Victor is able, with his eight-foot long wingspan, he's able to kind of cover both and, and help off of that and still get back to the shooter in, in a lot of cases. Now, granted, sometimes he tries a little too hard and, and just kind of goes completely out of structure in, in ways that are really uh, befuddling. Um, I In the opener against the Mavs, he had this one section where Luka Doncic, uh, Luka Doncic, top five player, top 10 player in the league uh, by any measure, uh, one of the, the best offensive players we have in this game. And Victor was just helping off his defender in the strong corner and just kind of hacking at his arms over and over and over for literally like three to four seconds. And it was like, what are you, why, what are you doing? Like, why are you trying to do this to like an elite ball handler to an elite offensive player? He's going to, to make you pay. And Luca made him pay. He passed it to the three point shooter who drained a wide open shot. There was also a game against Atlanta recently where um, Victor and and Sohan, the Spurs' two best defenders, they were going against a, a Trey Young pick and roll, and over and over and over again, Trey Young kept cooking them no matter what sort of coverages they ran, and routinely Victor was helping off of his defender too much, and and Trey it was just an easy pass to a. Uh, Clint Capella for an easy dunk because Victor was helping way too hard off him. So he needs to, I, I understand his, his geometry allows him to break certain rules, but he's still very much feeling out uh, positioning in, in defense. And so it's kind of scary what will happen once that happens, once he figures that out and becomes a lot more consistent. But really the one thing you'll notice about Victor and is that the number it's not about the number of block shots it's about the number of times people dribble around him and are just like yeah nope i'm not gonna try that the number of kickouts to the perimeter that he just he ha- that happens because of his presence right there i believe that happens like a, to a certain extent with chet and but it's just at another level with uh, with victor and sure, some guys do try Victor, and some guys win with either a fadeaway or even get him at the rim, but they lose a lot more than they win. Uh, I'll ju- I'll just put it at that. So I, I haven't watched enough of Chet defensively. I I hear he's a superb defender, and watching him in college, he was ridiculous as well. Um. So yeah, I, I guess I'll stop it at that. Uh, my conclusion is Chet is a rightful rookie of the year and is probably going to win it at at this rate. Uh, given team success, efficiency, and how good he's played, absolutely. Um, but I, I think Wembenyama's been a, a better player and is a better player right now. But it's a good discussion, and it's up for debate. One thing that is not up for debate is that the Spurs suck, man. <laughs> they suck. <laughs> As of this recording, they are currently John 316 as in three wins and 16 losses. They are dead last in the West. They are tied for the third worst record in the in the league. And they are officially in the inner tankdom, which is a zone that I declare for the three or four worst teams in the league that are vying for the number one pick. They are Ghani for Brawny. Not that Brawny is actually going to be a, a lottery pick, projected wise but uh they are follier for collier we'll, we'll workshop this as as uh perhaps a a top prospect emerges in the draft but yeah i mean they started three and two they've since lost 14 straight and any hope of making the play in is well out the window i unfortunately have watched most of this 14 game losing streak and uh a lot of the games they haven't been competitive Granted, some of the more recent ones, they actually have been. They played a close one at Atlanta. It's been encouraging. They've bowed through some injuries to their point guard, Trey Jones, and, and Devin Vassell. Vassell is 
perhaps their their second best player. He's this sharpshooting guy who six nine ish, but at two to three times a game he will dribble through the lane and shoot the most ridiculous like fader with the, a defender in his face, and it'll go in like eighty percent, ninety percent of the time. He's ridiculous, and uh, if he ever develops more of a handle and and more kind of self creation, he could be an all star or borderline all star at, at that. But he he is part of the core for sure. But going to back to the the team, it's been clear from the jump that they were never that this season has been was designed to be about development. That it wasn't designed to chase a play in spot in the West, even though maybe they could have could be a little bit more competitive with certain rotations one of those rotation decisions as i mentioned before that has caused a civil war on spurs twitter is the decision to start jeremy sohan at point guard uh jeremy sohan again he's a he's a jack of all trades he's a six nine uh really good defensively very versatile defensively a smart passer great cutter not a shooter but has a some playmaking upside but he's never had any point guard experience like maybe he handled some pick and rolls at Baylor uh, when, when he was in college but very underqualified to be an, an NBA starting NBA point guard and the analytics really uh, suggested the Spurs I, I don't know quite the plus minus but it's really drastic when Sohan's at the point they're a really negative team when when Sohan's at the point when they put the backup in, uh, the backup Trey Jones in, who has grew up a point guard. He's six three, uh, not a shooter, but he knows ball. Trey Jones knows ball, and he's good defensively and and makes smart passes. Actually, the Spurs are a very positive team when when Trey Jones shares the floor with Wimbenyama and, and Sohan's on the bench. And a lot of the national media and, and the current Spurs fan base is, is sick of this experiment. But here's the real reason Sohan is starting at point guard. I don't think the plan was ever for Sohan to be the long-term the long-term solution at point guard. In fact, I don't think that long-term solution at point guard is currently on the roster. It's probably someone they'll draft in the upcoming years or uh, perhaps uh, find in free agency. The real reason Sohan's on the floor is because he's the he's the Spurs' third most important asset that they have. One is Victor, who we've we've been talking about. Two is Vassell, who has perhaps All Star upside. We we don't know, but he's he's definitely I I would consider him their second best player. And third is Sohan, who who isn't their third best player, but in terms of upside and what he can be as a playmaker, as a defender. Uh, he could very well be their best perimeter defender, uh, and he just makes a lot of winning plays when he's out there. He's always making those hustle plays, and while he doesn't always finish at the rim, you can see the flashes uh, when he plays of, of his playmaking, his passing. It's just not consistent enough right now, but he's a prospect. He's in his second year in the league. The fourth most important guy to their rebuild is Keldon Johnson, who... Spurs fans, he is perhaps like their second best offensive player right now. Um, he's definitely one of the most consistent. He scored like 18 points a game last year. I, I think Spurs view him as expendable in, in the, the rebuild as someone that, ooh, hopefully a, a contender trades for Keldon Johnson. But he is very much a nice player, and he deserves to start. So Victor deserves to start. Vassell deserves to start. Keldon deserves to start. And the, the other guy I haven't mentioned who is starting is Zach Collins, who I think he's really good. He's a really tough guy. He finishes very well in the post. He's shown uh, some shooting chops. He's in a really horrid slump from three, but um, hypothetically he can shoot. And he's really out there to play center so that Victor Wembanyama, who's roughly 190 pounds, doesn't have to get beat up at the center position. So until Victor gets stronger and is comfortable playing the five full-time, those are four guys that just have to start if, if they're all available. And so 
it comes down to Sohan versus Trey Jones to to start in the final spot at point guard. And I love Trey Jones with all my heart. I loved him at Duke. He's a, a great player. He's currently a, a better, more consistent point guard than than Sohan full stop. But the priority is to develop Sohan. If they're going to get out of this rebuild, if they're ever going to contend, Sohan has the most upside, and they need to figure out what they have in him. Sohan's also their best perimeter defender, and if he's ever going to be viable to play long-term, he has to become a threat offensively. And I don't know how he's going to do that. I don't know if his jump shot will ever get to a point where uh, defenses will respect it. But his playmaking can, and hopefully learning through Perhaps one day he could become a secondary playmaker and figure out how to punish defenses, and, and he's already figuring out some of that. In fact, his latest game against the Hawks, I, I believe he had 30 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists. It was his best game, perhaps even a, as a spur. Now, granted, Trey, Trey Young, uh, the tiny point guard in Atlanta, was guarding him, but he crushed it. He, he hit both his threes and was uber-efficient and Perhaps the Spurs' best player there. Sohan has had flashy, flash games like this, and and hopefully they'll continue. And for everyone kind of despairing about this Spurs season, it just really seems like the talent in the league is is a lot higher. Uh, the talent level is just a lot higher than it was when I was a kid. I already talked about Zach Collins, who, as a big man, who is used to watching other big men really struggle uh, skill-wise. I'm used to being a big man that fails to catch the ball, and I've seen, especially in college basketball, there's stereotypically big men just are big, and they're, they're not skilled. And, and Zach Collins, he's, like, super consistent. He's smart guy. He's smart cutter, smart passer, really good finisher. And I think he's a better center than what the Spurs had when I was growing up. I think of in the past like Tiago Splitter who started next to Duncan who Tiago was kind of like an an above average center in the league and I have a hard time believing that Zach Collins isn't better than him but just given how deep the league is Zach Collins is a borderline starter in, in today's NBA he's arguably should come off the bench I look at a bunch of other Spurs players that do come off the bench. I, I look at Chetty Osman, who I, I call Chetty Bossman because he's ridiculous. He's amazing. He he was shooting like 53% from three earlier in the season. He's flying around the court making great passes, but he's a bench player in today's league. I look at Malachi Branham, another one of the prospects that the Spurs continue to develop, who is just absolutely money in the mid-range. And... Right now, he's kind of a negative player by NBA standards. I look at Julian Champagny, who was the Spurs Summer League MVP. I call, I jokingly call him the franchise because he looked like a franchise player in Summer League. And in his first game, watching him, he's like struggling to dribble. The game is just way too fast for him. And I'm like, this guy is insanely good at basketball, and he, he just can't hang on this court. Now, shout out Julian. He hit five threes against Atlanta. He is figuring it out. I think he's a a decent rotation player. But the guys he's going against are just absolutely insane night after night after night. I turned on a Pistons-Wizards game recently. And those are probably the two worst teams in the league. And I was just really impressed by... (laughs) How talented everyone was. I was like, man, this Kyle Kuzma guy, he is cooking people tonight. I, I even see prospects on the Wizards like Denny Avdia, and I'm like, wow, that guy's a keeper. That guy can really play. I see a bunch of dudes on Detroit, and I don't know how they've only won two games so far this year. Like Cade Cunningham, he's a baller. He's He looks every bit like a franchise player. Asar Thompson, uh, one of the Thompson twins. I I did love the Thompson twins coming into the draft. Asar Thompson is just a do-it-all freak athlete. Absolutely flying around the court and causing problems everywhere he goes. I even see guys like Isaiah Livers, and and that's 
that sounds like an NPC from 2K, but I'm like, wow, this guy, this guy can shoot. This guy is nice. Even the much maligned Killian Hayes, who most of NBA Twitter knows as a bust. When I was watching him, he had a chase down block followed by like a really nice pass. There's, there's just no scrubs in the NBA anymore. Not that there were ever scrubs, but just the level of shot making and play throughout the league is, is crazy. I, I think this Pistons team is like fun to watch and, and ridiculously talented. But then you look on Twitter and you realize they've lost 17 straight and Pistons Twitter looks like Chernobyl 2.0. So for all this, the Spurs uh, doomsday people, not that I think there's, there's a lot of them, but I do think a lot of people are aggravated watching the Spurs, watching Wimbanyama uh, take long threes and stuff. A, we're not the Pistons. <laughs> Thankfully, we're not uh, the Pistons, even though uh, I, I think the Pistons have bright upside once they handle their mismanagement issues. <laughs> but really, I, I think us Spurs fans have to kind of trust the process in a way. It's going to take time. It's going to take more draft picks. We don't have to blow all our ammo in year one of Victor. The The future is insanely bright, and let's just give it a couple of years. Let's enjoy the growth and let this happen organically. So that is the state of the Spurs. Um, they are 3-16. and 16. The three games they won, Victor kind of went crazy in, in all of them. So they very well could have been 0-19 uh, if it weren't for Victor. But it's all upside from here, and, and this season – I've enjoyed it a ton, even though uh, I've been watching a lot of blowouts. At least we're not Florida State today. And and with that, I will leave it at that. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this pod. Uh, if you enjoyed it or you have another Spurs fan in your life or you want to dunk on a FSU fan, uh, feel free to send it around to, to your friends, uh, someone who might like it. Uh, also, please... Uh, Hit the follow on, on Spotify if you're listening on that platform. And programming update, we do expect, I, I have recorded the Songs of the Year uh, podcast, which we'll be hopefully releasing later this week, uh, as well as a an Albums of the Year podcast coming soon. Maybe we'll bring Schaefer and Dylan back for Video Games of the Year. It could be a crazy month for pods. Um, fingers crossed, we'll, we'll see, but... Um, hope you all are having a happy holiday season with your loved ones and, and, uh, thanks for checking it out. Hope you have a great one.